Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Could you please tell us? Um, can you hear me? I'm asking. Um, anyway. Last time I looked, I was. Um, my favorite story, I'll just send this out there in case anyone is there. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I, it made me laugh. Um, and few stories in the news make me laugh these days. But um, this one...
his heart, and essentially uh, he argued he, he was briefly dead. He, he died uh, four years ago, uh, was revived, even though he had asked not to be, do not resuscitate. He was brought Got to give him this for um, a good old Hail Mary. Anyways, if I die, even for a moment there, didn't I then serve my life sentence? I guess too clever by half. <laughs> okay. Um, I have to share these other little, what I think are delightful things with you, uh, because the the news is always so uh, stressful and anxiety-inducing. Um, here, this, this is something called Metropolitan Diary that appears, I think, in the Saturday edition of the New York Times, I'm not sure, it was one of the weekend editions, and I've always gotten a kick out of it because people just write in, New Yorkers write in, uh, they're an experience that they have had. And um, they are often delightful. Here is one that I laughed at, and maybe you will too. This is written by a woman named Christine Lavin. And she says, I, I was at an artist colony in upstate New York. It was so quiet, I had to run a white noise machine at night to block out the silence so I could sleep. You know, it's exactly what happened to me. I lived in New York for two years. And when I would go visit my parents in Green Bay, the quiet at night was like, it sounded so bizarre to me, I could not sleep. So I also did have a sound machine, I called it a sound machine, yeah, that would, you know, make noise so I could actually get to sleep. And what's funny is I had the sound machine for the same reason this woman did. As I'll go back to her letter now. She says, at home I run the noise machine to block out the rattle and hum of the subway crossing the Manhattan Bridge. So you use it to mask the din in New York. You use it to mask the unbearable silence in, um, in the country. Anyway, 
she just sets the tone that she was there in a more natural setting for which she was uh, a little a little uncomfortable. And she says, I was walking on a country path one day while I was there when I saw a small snail with a big brownish-orange shell. It turned out to be making its way from one side to the other. It seemed to be making its way from one side of the trail to the other. The path didn't get much traffic, but I thought the snail might be in danger. I bent down close to encourage it to speed up. This is a city slicker for sure. But it froze. I reached down to pick the snail up. I didn't want to startle it. And I gingerly picked it up. And it was an acorn. An acorn, not a snail. I uh, realize that I may need to get out of the city more often. <laughs> I thought that was cute. Okay, what are we telling me now about the sound? Your sound is still going in and out. Mostly can't hear you. And the quality is poor when they do hear it. Someone thinks I'm doing an imitation of George Bush. <laughs> I can't read your lips. Uh, yeah, a few words are coming through, but with a cavernous echo to them. All right. Is there... I don't know what to do. I mean, you guys don't want to listen to this, right? And I don't want to blow all my, you know, I got some fodder here for some potentially good, good stuff that you might enjoy. And if I, I don't want to blow it. Damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. And let me just reiterate. Damn it. So, I don't know. Am we going on or not? The problem is, is our, uh, you know, guy who's like an engineer guy. He's not here. He usually is, but he's not. So, um... I mean, Amy, what do you think? Okay, they're saying it sounds like a mic is across the room and is echoey. You think there's a mic on on there? Okay, let's try to, wait, we're just going to try to do one thing, you know, turn that thing on. Shit. Would somebody put a mic on the friggin' camera?
in my lifetime with Nixon and uh, Clinton. The only one I wasn't around for was Johnson. That's the Johnson and the not LBJ. And I, uh, I, I just don't, I guess what I'll do is I'll do a show like I would do the show. Um, I would hope that those of you listening to the other stuff uh, might, you know, let me know on occasion. Uh, it's gone again. This just came in. It's gone again. Okay. You think you fixed it? Okay. We now have a, a little ray of hope here, those of you who are still there. Um, and there's a sense that you might have, we might have uh, fixed it. Would you let us know? It says here, when the producer touched the second mic, all audio went. I think your mic is off, and you're being picked up by the auxiliary studio. You think this mic is off? <laughs> I don't know. This mic sounds on to me. Um, I'm okay now? Sounds good now. Ah! Woo! Woo! Our sound is back. So it was that? Was this fucking thing here? Okay. Well, I got to tell you. Whoever you are, stop messing with this in here. Jesus. Okay. Well, now, let's pretend we're just beginning. I'm going to assume you didn't hear anything I said. Is that true? Maybe not. I mean, if you were just getting every other word, what the hell's the point? Anyway, good morning. It's Veterans Day. Um, I, I have nothing much to say about that. Uh, because we all just say the same things and... Uh, there's a measure of uh, great gratitude, of course, for those who died for this country, who were maimed for this country. And the only thing that makes me uh, queasy is that I feel like we are asking these brave volunteers to die or be maimed psychologically, physically, for this country now for dubious purposes. When my father served this country, it was no dubious purpose. That would be World War II. So I just, for those who died in Vietnam... For those who have died in a lot of, in the Iraq war, which didn't have to happen, um, and has created all these, I'm not so sure we should say any more thank you for your service, but just apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry we put you in that position for not a good reason, not a good enough reason. So. Now, where to go? 
What to talk about? I none of you give a damn about Bolivia, but I do because that's where my son was born. And um, and when Evo Morales uh, became president there, um, I was thrilled because he was the first born uh, actual indigenous Bolivian to ascend to that office. Every other president of Bolivia before then had been, you know, a white guy. Excuse me. A white guy from, uh, you know, Spanish uh, extraction. The colonizers. And what the colonizers did to the people who had been there for millennia the natives, of which my son is proudly a part, um, is a story told and retold over and over again in in South America, in Africa. And those people are still fighting to get their countries back. You have to look here, the Native Americans, same thing, right? So I just thought it, it was an extraordinary breakthrough when this guy got in. I know... My son, uh, my mother even knit my son a sweater because Evo, when he was first elected, always wore this same sweater. It had a red and white and a kind of pale blue stripes. And my mom knit my my son an Evo sweater, which she made too big. And I swear to this day, I mean, he can wear it. Um, he um, did some good stuff and then he stayed too long at the fair and that is so often what happens right the corrupting influence of power Uh, so he first indigenous president of this poor, poor country. This country was raped and pillaged by the West for centuries. It was mineral rich. And all of that stuff went out into the pockets of not Bolivian people. These were Europeans, you know, imperialists. And when Morales first came in, he changed stuff. Oh, yeah. And Bolivia's economy grew under him. Inequality really shrunk. I believe uh, women now hold an amazing amount of powerful positions when they had had none and indigenous peoples also hold a great deal of power. He stayed too long at the fair. But while he was there, he lifted millions out of poverty. There is a true and now racially diverse middle class in that country. When my son was born, Bolivia was the second poorest country in South America, uh, um, ranking behind just Haiti. 
child mortality there, I think, ranked just beneath Haiti. And none of that is true anymore. And that is thanks to, in large part, Evo Morales. He kept all the stuff that was still going out. He kept it at home. Yes, nationalized some things so that the imperialists couldn't have it anymore. If he had had, what so few do, whatever, the ability to say, okay, I'll step down now. I did much of what I wanted to do, but he didn't. If he had done that after two or even three terms, um, his legacy would be of a South American uh, heroic leader. But turns out he's a guy like every other guy. And losing power Wait a minute. Who set out again? It's still in and out a little bit. Okay. Well, I just if we're in right now, let's just leave it alone. Yeah, don't touch a thing. Okay. All right. That's all I wanted to say because there was I've there's no reason any of you should feel um a connection to Evo Morales, but I <laughs> I always did. Um and having been twice in that beautiful country, um, I, I care about it and have always uh, watched uh, what is happening there. Um, I guess we can go to some political stuff. I don't know. Um, I, I want to say this about the, the billionaires going insane. Um, even billionaires who probably vote for Democrats because of Elizabeth Warren's uh, tax proposals. And there is no doubt that under her proposal to pay for Medicare for all, the billionaires would uh, have to surrender uh, billions but guess what? They'd all still have billions. How much money do you need to live a rich life? How much? Huh? What do you think? What would it be for you? You think a million? <laughs> a million doesn't do it anymore. Ten million? Yeah, could do pretty good. Fifty million, a hundred million dollars. Oh, that's a billion. <laughs> um, you can't spend it. <laughs> you can't. It it's sort of like Evo Morales, unable to give up his power for a greater good. It's once you start this accumulation, you nothing good happens in that regard because it's human nature. You want more. 
those billions sit and sit and sit. What Elizabeth Warren wants to do is take some of these billions, which they can afford to give, and use it for the greater good. Now, if people see that as communism, fine and dandy. It is not. It is a slight redistribution of the wealth of a nation. And when a nation has such an unbalanced, such a ridiculous disparity between who's holding most of the pie, who's got all the money, it is such a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of people. I mean, tiny. I don't. What are we talking about? Five hundred people, maybe, <laughs> who would all still be billionaires under her plan. But guess what? Hundreds of millions of people would have better health care. Would have health care. New York Times did this thing and they said, okay, so if this wealth tax, which she wants, would have been in effect since 1982, okay, Bill Gates, who made his first billion by 1987, would still have accumulated... 14 billion dollars today 14 billion dollars what he has is 97 billion dollars now for him that looks like oh my god you're taking what are you taking you're taking my money we got to remember what he has left, $14 billion? Jeff Bezos. Aww. If this tax had been in place since 1982, Jeff Bezos would only have, last year, about $50 billion dollars. Oh, are we going to go crying because Jeff Bezos only has $50 billion? What, $500 million? He has $160 billion. All of these guys would still be billionaires many times over. And here's the other thing that people don't. This bull, that if people can't keep every red cent they make, then there's no incentive for them to work, to be an entrepreneur, to strive to build something. That is, and I know because I lived through a period in which taxation was so much higher than it is now, and that was when the United States economy was humming. Everybody was happy. That's when the middle class was born. Man, it was all working. Rich people were getting richer. 
but not in this obscene way. My father was never a billionaire. He wasn't even close. He was nowhere near close. But he was a young, successful entrepreneur. Bought up some land, put some buildings on it, and became a developer in his hometown. The tax rate he paid, I believe, was 90%. Can you imagine? And was that under a socialist regime? No, I believe the president was Dwight David Eisenhower. You can double check it, but I think it was 90%. So 90% of every dollar my dad got went to the government? He bitched. And his mother-in-law, my grandmother, famously would say to him, Oh, rich people's problems. Because he was still making money. He was still making money. Did it stop him? Did he say, well, then I'm not going to buy any more land. I'm not going to have these ideas about what, would be good for a health care clinic there on the Native American reservation. I could work in... He never stopped thinking of things to do because he had a passion to do it. Our economy was never stronger than when our tax rates were sky high. Check it out. But we have a bamboozled citizenry now who have been well brainwashed by Republicans and by the 1980s greed is good period, made the gilded period look like a, you know, tea party. Capitalism run amok will destroy any sense of community, any sense of peoplehood, which is, by the way, a definition of nationhood, right? How do you have a strong country if you have such disparate outcomes in how hard-working people are compensated. Now, Republicans, I know, like to believe that if you're not rich, you're lazy. I know more lazy rich people. I, as a matter of fact, rich people are often the laziest. They're producing nothing. Producing nothing. The money just keeps flying in from trust funds and dividends and capital gains. Tax that shit. Tax their wealth. Oh, a thousand million is a billion. I was so always bad at a thousand million is a billion. Jesus H. All right, all you guys, 
everybody see when it comes to zeros i my my brain matter turns out okay my friend mary says i find it so hard to conceptualize what a million a billion what a trillion are this is so true and she says this helped me get it okay this is good the difference between a million and a billion let's say a million seconds well it is a million seconds we know what a second is is 12 days all right we get our hands around 12 days that's a million seconds a little less than two weeks a billion seconds is 31 years 31 years that's why I said a million yeah it's just 12 days a billion is 31 years a trillion you don't even want to know a trillion um, a trillion is 31,688 years Here's another way of looking at it in terms of time. Now we're going to minutes. Let's take a million minutes ago from the last minute, from right now, a million minutes down the road. Where would we end up? We'd end up almost two years ago. A year, 329 days, 10 hours and 40 minutes. So a million minutes will get us almost two years. A billion minutes? Remember, we're going after billionaires. A billion minutes, you know where you would get? You could be walking around, you could be walking around Nazareth with a guy named Jesus Christ. That's a good way. Thank you, Mary. So a thousand million is a billion, not a hundred million. Wow. So when these CEOs and these billionaires start bitching, when Bloomberg gets so freaked he has to jump in to the... yeah, You know, I, do not... They are... One one millionth or billionth or trillionth of the population, and they are holding like half the friggin' pizza for themselves. And if you think that makes any sense, morally, ethically, economically, socially, politically, morally, you're nuts. You have been iron randized. On the other hand, I read this. All the polls show that the Democrats who will be voting in the battleground states, and that includes us here in Pennsylvania. All the polls show they like a moderate. 
so that when you ask these Democratic voters in Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, who do you want? They say Biden. Biden, 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 Biden. Every single state. Who do they say next? But almost half as many. So while Biden might get 30%, the next one gets 15%. Warren comes in that second. Warren, 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 Warren. Third, Bernie. Fourth, Buttigieg. That is on all the battleground states, the same thing you see. But here's what I want to see, say. If you look at those numbers, this would take Pennsylvania. Biden gets 28% of Democratic voters here right now saying, I want him. Warren gets 16%. Bernie gets 14%. Now, my math is shaky, my arithmetic is awful, but if you add Warren and Sanders voters, and you got to figure, in terms of ideology, they're pretty much on the same page. That number is 30%. And that is bigger than Biden's 28%. Do it again in... Florida, you get the same result. All of a sudden, the more progressive voters are numbering 32%. Biden, 27. Wisconsin, take Warren and Sanders together and you get 45% to Biden's 23. So, what does that tell you? Either Bernie or Warren have to go. And I don't think either of them will. So they will split the progressive vote. I... I My guess is, I hope voters start to show that they think Warren is the stronger candidate. I don't know, because I like her more than I like Bernie. But this idea that Democrats want a moderate doesn't work if you take Warren and Sanders voters and put them together. There's more of them. Now, I suppose with Bidens, we could, we could factor in uh, Klobuchar, and it's still, it's almost a wash. And I'll tell you what it shows. It shows a Democratic Party that is divided. People who just want to move ahead, and people who are more cautious, more moderate. I can go... Either way, <laughs> depending on my mood, as I'm sure you've seen. I can go either way, and I will vote for any of these people, moderate or not. But Democrats have to face the reality that we are a very divided party, 
and how that plays out uh, in the primaries is one thing, but the damage caused by that civil war, that internal war, uh, we got to make sure it doesn't damage us in the general, no matter who gets in. In other words, if a progressive gets in, those moderates have got to stay with the Democrats and vice versa. If a moderate gets in, you can't have the Bernie bros doing what they did last time and friggin' leaving. We've got to stay together. I have a caller and I forgot I did and I'm sorry. My apologies. Go ahead. Curtin, what's fail? Caller? This, yeah, this is Kurt. How are you? Well, maybe the call stuff doesn't work. Okay, sorry. Can't take you. Oh, you can't hear me? Hello? One more time. Can you hear Hello? me? No. All right. We'll get this under control. <laughs> oh, man. And then uh, just some other things that I've um, noted. Uh also, over the weekend, a lot of stories appearing about how the other the Democratic candidates almost universally do not like one of their own. And I'm not talking Tulsi Gabbard, although she's certainly there too. It's Buttigieg. They don't like him. And they're freaked by the power he seems to have amassed. Uh, power in terms of uh, fundraising, power in terms of, uh, of voter interest. Uh, he's looking like somebody who knows how to build a winning campaign. And there's a little anecdote about how at a recent event in uh, Waverly, Iowa, where, of course, these Democratic hopefuls are these days, uh, Joe Biden was at some event and Buttigieg happened in. And Biden turned to greet him and according to the reporter said to Buttigieg, Hello, Mr. President, to Buttigieg. And he said, the reporter said, Biden's voice was dripping in condescension. Uh, Buttigieg, boy, they are going to start. I, but God help us, the next debate's coming up, right? They are going to go after him. Because he's seeing, seeming more and more of a threat. And they really do worry about um, three things with him. And they all have to do with electability. He's only won one election in his life, and that was for the mayor of a town of uh, the size of Green Bay. I mean, it's 100,000 people. <laughs> I mean, there are... There are members of the of city councils in big cities who ha have, you know, more people under under their sway. Um, 
they worry about that. They worry about his the one statewide office he ran for. He did not win. They worry about his uh, age, and that age means experience as well. And um, and no one's saying it, but they probably also worry about his uh, sexual orientation. Uh, usually, if there's a large field candidates, you know, sort of end up in little groups and there's one that they often can't stand. According to this article, back in 2004, the one the other candidates couldn't stand was Howard Dean, the governor then of uh, Vermont, right? And he, they were thrilled when he went down because of that victory scream he emitted. Can you imagine? That's what used to take you down. 2008, the Republican candidates despised Mitt Romney. Nobody would even talk to him backstage uh, before uh, a debate. And guess who was the least popular in 2008 at this juncture in the campaign? Barack Obama. Who the hell does this guy think he is? He served, what, a few years on his first term in uh, national office? So David Axelrod, who was obviously the chief strategist of uh, Obama's winning campaign in 2008, who also really likes Pete Buttigieg, says this, It is a natural thing when a young candidate comes along and has success for other candidates who feel like they've toiled in the vineyards a long, long time to resent it. I think, Axelrod said, they'd like Pete better if he wasn't doing so well. <laughs> of course, of course, that's, uh, that is it. So they're attacking him left and right, and some of the attacks are pretty good. He cannot attract black and Latino voters thus far, not at all. Is that a winning Democratic candidate in a general election? I don't know. He's getting more aggressive, and they're getting more aggressive against him. I mean, this is what happens, so just... It'll be interesting watching as this plays out. Interesting or terrifying, however, however you see it. Um, and here's here's a piece that uh, that got got to me because this does get to me because I have. Uh, the same feeling of these of a lot of people on my side, your side, I'm assuming for most of you. Um, you know, the the woke ones who Obama went after the other day about, you know, the, their sort of like purity rituals and their cancellation culture and their you got to be perfect or we'll take you down. One mistake defines your life. It is such, it is so 
I can see myself being like that in college. I can see that, too, when you're young. You're young, you're sure of yourself, you're angry, you've you got a lot of things, but you're absolutely certain. And there's nothing you can do then about it. <laughs> you can't argue with people like that. But, but a lot of them never lose that. And so there's a lot of older people in the Democratic Party who are you know, just extraordinarily condescending. I might be one of them on occasion. You know, and um, one columnist who has a sister works at Walmart, uh, low-paying jobs. He has been trying to show her how Trump is screwing her left, right, and center. How it was Trump who was trying to take away her the piddling health care she has. <coughs> it is Trump whose tariffs have made it harder for her to pay her bills. Uh, and he says he can't move her. And it's not on any of those issues that she doesn't move. She doesn't move because she hates us more. And I have heard that time and time and time again. Why do they hate us? Well, they hate us because we treat them like they're fools and idiots. And I guess that is no way to make friends. Her brother says, yeah, some of these people really are xenophobes, racist, horrible people. But many others are just people who got left behind in this capitalist free-for-all. They're the ones not even getting a sliver of the pizza. They didn't see the Democrats standing up for them, especially white, blue-collar people, right? And I think there's social issues, too, that they feel insulted, they feel dismissed if their religion is important to them, you know, all, all that stuff. You think that doesn't matter? It does matter. And I don't know how we get um, an attitude change on the part of our folks who tend to be so dismissive. You know, I used to hear from many black people that they find the racism of the South <coughs> much more tolerable than the racism of the North. I heard a speaker the other day on anti-Semitism, Barry Weiss, who said the same kind of thing, how anti-Semitism coming from the right is just right out there. <laughs> it's you Jews, you this, you that. Anti-Semitism from the left which she thinks is rampant, and I do not disagree with her, is like, is like liberals in the North thinking they're not racist, is this sort of wishy-washy things where they come around, they are, they're hidden, they're more polite and decorous, but it's still there. You'd rather have the person be right out there in front, you know, I can identify, there you are, okay. 
You hate me. And progressives' inability to deal with that in our own ranks, and I never call myself a progressive because I hate the term. Um, I thought liberal was just fine. Liberal worked for my dad. Liberal will work for me. And I don't go running for, from a word just because uh, the right wing uh, has decided to demonize it and come up with an all-new one. Progressive. Anyway, the guy writing about his sister says this. For the record, I'm agnostic on the Democratic field. I would vote for a tree stump if it would beat Trump. Um, and he says, Warren is not connecting with the very people her policies are supposed to help. Trump beats her or runs even in every toss-up state but one. The persuadable voters in those states, many of them working class white people, say political correctness has gotten out of control. I agree. And they prefer someone seeking common ground over someone with a militantly progressive agenda. It is worth remembering that nearly two-thirds of all American voters do not have a four-year college degree. But the inconvenient fact is that a relatively small pool of working-class voters in a handful of battleground states are still likely to determine who wins this presidential election. Democrats flipped 40 House seats just last year, attracted more white working class voters without insufferable wokeness. No, they won because they were dealing with health care, kitchen table concerns. The same way the upset in the Kentucky governor's race happened. And damn it, There is a whole bunch of folks on our side who are just incapable of seeing themselves as others see them. He ends like this. Those like my sister... For those like my sister, a word to Democrats, talk to these people. Don't talk over them. Save the piety, the shaming on social media for after the election. You don't have to stop altogether. Otherwise, the woke are going to wake up on November 4th. 2020 to a tragedy. Just saying. Just saying. 
Back to your emails. Well, this is coming from a black man, Milton. Southern racists don't care how close Negroes get as long as there aren't too many of them. A northern race, northern racists don't care how many Negroes there are as long as they don't get too close. That's from Dick Gregory. Um, oh, this is interesting. Ellen is saying she could hear the caller. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, oh, and this is the guy who was on the phone. He says, um, I, I think we get the message wrong on higher taxes for the rich when we say the prosperity of the 20th century happened in spite of high taxes. I think growth happened because of the taxes. As I remember it, avoiding the tax provided a motivation to invest in new equipment, personnel, and business growth because expenditures reduced taxes and kept resources in-house. Now people just sit on the money, put it in their pockets, put it in their kids' trust funds instead. They do not reinvest. They do not create jobs like they would. It was the taxes that gave them the incentives to do that. And they still got rich. Great point, Kurt. Great point. Great point. Now, I've heard a few things on this. Is this true <coughs> that uh, Alexander Vidman, the um, NSC guy and uh, Purple Heart winner and all that kind of stuff who testified uh, behind closed doors to the impeachment inquiry, was removed from the National Security Council. I have heard conflicting things on this. Is this true? In an interview on Face the Nation, National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, who replaced John Bolton, said that Vindman would be leaving his position along with several others. Um... I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, look, at, of course they want to get the guy. I mean, they've been after him, trying to tar and feather him. Um, but my, my understanding is he'll be leaving, but leaving on his normal rotation. I don't know if they just flat out canned him. I don't know. I'm not sure. But listen, that's the way they play, so... It wouldn't be a shocker if that was the case. Um, oh, my God, it's really time for us to go, even though we didn't have a full hour today. Uh, thank you for your patience and hanging there with us, and we'll definitely try to get this uh, resolved totally for tomorrow, when I believe my sister will be joining me. I don't know. You have a good day. Enjoy this last bit of warmth for a while, maybe till next year. Like, Truly. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com.
The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.